I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Beth Kaplan joins me again. She just published a new collection of essays, Midlife Solo, Writing Through Chaos to Find My Way in the World. It follows Beth, who at 40, with uh, two young children, divorces from their father. There are essays here about therapy, about raising uh, two kids as a single parent, how to make ends meet as a creative, writing and getting published uh, for the first time, as well as growing older. Beth is in her 70s now, and there's no stopping her. She teaches and she continues to write. The book is relatable in many ways, and there'll be something in the book uh, that will uh, tug at a heartstring or prompt you to uh, do something in your own life. Throughout the book, family members grow, as well as others flow in and out of Beth's life, and we see Beth, in these 25 years or so, grow not just as a parent and writer, but as a person. I'll talk to Beth about the book and more, a teacher for over 30 years now at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University and the University of Toronto. Beth Kaplan spent her 20s as an actress before taking on motherhood, raising two children. Her essays, some of which appear in this book, have appeared in sundry publications, including the Globe and Mail. She's also broadcast some of them on CBC Radio. Her website is at bethkaplan.ca. Beth was first on the program in December 2020 when her previous book, Loose Woman, was published. This uh, new book is uh, from Mosaic Books. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Beth Kaplan. Ms. Kaplan, good morning. Yes, good to talk to you, Joe, again. Nice to talk to you. Um, This collection of essays um, chronicles a lot of your life after your marriage and after... uh, your two uh, giving birth to your two children the the um the form of essays i must say lends itself well uh, when talking about one's life because um these are essentially episodes from your life aren't they they are yes and that was one of the problems when i was putting together the book was that uh, you know because these were almost exclusively essays that had been published mm. um you know so just to backtrack a bit when i um found myself newly divorced at the age of 40 uh living in downtown toronto with two s- small children and I had just finished my master's from UBC in creative writing. I had finished long distance because my husband and I kept moving uh-huh. as he as he gained greater and greater you know job prospects. And so suddenly, uh, in 1990, I'm living in downtown Toronto with my kids. I'm a single mother, and I have a master's in creative writing. My acting career is in Vancouver. My friends are in Vancouver. My family is somewhere else. You know, and I had no idea how to start as a writer. Where where would I even begin? I was writing what turned out to be my first book, which had been my thesis for UBC, and uh-huh. then I just kept going. And that book would take 25 years to finish for various reasons. So I, I wanted to kind of make a mark as a writer and had no idea. And I started with facts and arguments in the Globe and Mail. Mm. Um, so, you know, this was a 1,200-word personal essay uh, in a column open to the general public. And so one day I saw this, and I thought, why don't I try that? And I wrote an essay, and I sent it in. And two weeks later, it was in the newspaper with a big illustration. You know, it was one of the great thrills of my life. They paid a, a big, fat $100, <laughs> you know. And there was my byline yeah. uh, in a national newspaper. 
And so suddenly it was the beginning of really feeling like a writer because it's hard, you know, with the book that I had already been writing for 15 years, but it was invisible, you know, because I was still just doing research. And um, so uh, suddenly I could say, look, I've got something published. And so I kept writing essays for The Globe and then for other newspapers and magazines. And then I started to submit essays for various CBC programs. And then, uh, then I could read them mm. myself as well, which used you know, my acting background as well as writing. And and it, it was something that it turned out I, I had someone said once, you have a sprinter's breath, meaning, you know, you can do these short pieces. And certainly as a single mother, that was what I had time for, was right. I could sit down, bang out an essay, mm-hmm. you know, rewrite it, get it out in the world. And it was it really worked. For 10 years, I wrote a lot of essays about my daily life, my neighborhood, you know, various adventures. Yeah. And um, and then I focused on books uh, until twenty uh, after twenty twenty when um, I read these old essays again and I thought you know a lot of them even though they were written twenty five years ago there many of them are still very current because they're about universal issues yeah. about divorce being a single parent about neighborhood about travel about friendship. And um, and so I thought, oh, well, this will be really easy. I'll, you know, they're already written, most yeah. of them. So I just bang them into a collection and, you know, fabulous, there'll be a book. And, of course, it wasn't like that at all because you need an arc. Even if mm. it's a collection, you need to feel that you're following the narrator from one place to another, from the beginning to the end. Something is changing. Something is happening. And so there was really a lot of moving stuff around and banging yeah. my head against the wall and yeah. even digging up other pieces or writing other pieces to fill in gaps. Yeah, you you really do see the growth, um, the personal growth, obviously, of you as a person. But it's exciting to read the, the growth uh, as a writer because you describe the excitement of, of um, getting published in the Globe and Mail for the first time. And yes. um, this was something that you really wanted to do after acting. And um, the um, fully realized version of yourself, if you will, um, it, it seems to me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, it runs in conjunction with your career as a writer, that development, and uh, also teaching. Yes. Yes, very much so. I was extremely lucky uh, because even though I was doing all this writing, it was paying very little money. Um, but uh, I had a friend who was, well, a friend of a friend who was running the writing programs at what was then Ryerson University. Uh-huh. And um, she wanted somebody to to be teaching nonfiction in the writing department, and she hired me really on the strength of a few of the essays in the globe. And so I began teaching with absolutely no idea what I was doing. You know, uh, I I was barely published, and yet uh, I had been writing all my life. I started to write as really as soon as I could hold a pen and join letters together. I was writing letters and poems and stories. It's And then I've had a diary all my life. And, and I've had a blog. Mm-hmm. It's just, 
I am one of those creatures who needs to translate my experience into words on a page. And so I found very soon that I loved teaching. I figured it out bit by bit how to do this job. And, um, you know, I've been doing it ever since. It uses my skills as an actress, you know, mm. because I was an, an actor for, for 10 years, a professional actor in Vancouver, largely. And, uh, and to me, a class is a show. I need to keep people engaged. I need to make them laugh. I need to keep them stimulated. I need to keep my eye on what is happening out there. What is the mood? This person looks sleepy. That person looks bored, you know. Um, and so I'm using those skills, uh, but I'm also imparting hard-won wisdom about writing nonfiction and memoirs specifically. And I've been doing it for 30 years now. Yeah. Yeah. And I still love it. So it's true that the writing and the teaching were growing simultaneously. That's a very good point. Are you still a pen paller? Um, well, of course, these days it's all done by email. Mm. And so for a while, I had um, my long-term correspondence, people that I used to write letters to who were most of my my friends in bc after i left bc for ontario and i have kept files of our i used to print our emails together because (laughs) we transitioned from from letters to emails and and i would save the emails and now it's really sad to me that we don't and i don't i barely write letters anymore Mm. it's you know, my dear friend Nick Rice, who's an actor who was a friend of mine, you know, he was a student at UBC and we were in several shows together in Vancouver. And he sends me letters, even though he lives in Toronto. Yeah. But he writes letters to a lot of people, cards and letters. And it's a joy to get them. But I mostly reply to him by email just because it's so fast, yeah, you know, and yeah. I can type so much more quickly than I can write. And it's it's a real loss. So I'd have to say, no, I'm not a I, I write to I have a lot of correspondence, but they're on email, not in in letters. Yeah, the, 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 the um uh, I have done that. I was laughing a moment ago because I have done that great emails from from people over the years, the last 25 years or so, since we've started really using email in, in, with great regularity, um, printing them off. And then you yes. think, well, I'm, I'm going to just keep them on my, in, in my account. But then, you know, people change accounts from time to time. Yes. Uh, so you lose all these things. and so You uh, lose a lo- so much. You know, one of the things, I mean, I've really just begun to think about and work on my next book, uh-huh which is going to be about my parents, um, who people know if they've read my memoirs are yeah. very interesting and difficult people. And one of the reasons I want to do this is because I have letters. Yeah. My mother kept everything, and I have stacks and stacks of the letters they wrote to each other just after they met in 1944 and through the war and after the war and letters that I wrote to mom through the years, you know, I have these wonderful resources that bring back their voices and the time and what they were experiencing. And, you know, we've lost all that. It's, yeah. 
it really is it's a whole different world for biographers your gift and, and I this is in in full display in in midlife solo as well as your your previous book um, is that when you're talking about specifics in your life a fire a divorce aging parents being a single parent um, it's like you're speaking universally, even though these are the things that I haven't probably experienced myself as a reader. Um, this gift of storytelling, of connecting mm. with your audience, where, where do you think that comes from? You know, it is it is one of the great gifts of my life, and there's absolutely no question that I, I was a born storyteller. And I cannot help myself, you know, when I'm at parties, I and I sometimes feel, okay, I'm at a jukebox and I'm pushing B12 and it's the story of the fire, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is, you yeah. know, C19 and uh, it's it's a story about my kids. Um, and I, I simply love to do it. And it's, it's a genetic thing. My father had it. My mother absolutely did not. My father had this gift of storytelling, joke-telling, and um, I don't know really where it comes from. It's um, it's a kind of showman thing. And my son has it, and my mm-hmm. daughter does not, you know. So my son also, he was a bartender for years and would was constantly telling jokes and making people comfortable and turning his life into narrative, which is what I do now, not just with my books, but with my blog. I have a blog. I have a newsletter. I've just started a Substack. It's this flow of narrative turning my life into story, and I cannot not do it. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It is a genetic thing, um, certainly inherited from my father. I used to, I mean, when I finally finished research on my first book, which is about this man called the Jewish Shakespeare, who was a a very well-known Yiddish playwright in his time. And, uh, you know, so certainly a certain amount of writing and acting, you know, theater comes directly to me from him. I really felt this genetic connection to this man who was born in 1853, mm-hmm. but who spent his life writing plays and in the theater, which is, you know, very much has been my trajectory. And so I felt that there must be a genetic component there that went to my father, who was a scientist, but who also was an activist. He had a, a television debate show at one point. He was on the radio a lot. Mm-hmm. He, had a, he was a member of ACTRA, you know, the Actors' Union for Media, as I was, even though I was an actor, and he was a scientist and a professor. But he was on TV and radio so much that he also had, a, had a, um, an ACTRA card. Yeah. They, so it's a it's a family trait. Yeah. Uh, speaking of family, um, you mentioned this. Uh, I can't remember. I guess it's near the beginning of the book. The, the weight of family expectations. When did you feel that acutely? Was it was it after wanting to be an actor? Um. Well, yeah, that's an, an odd one, because in some ways. The weight of family expectations fell much more heavily on my younger brother mm. because he was the boy, and you know. And though um, I, you know, my father founded a private school, a private boys' school. He, he was a huge supporter of public education, but there, in Halifax, he felt the public education wasn't good enough for his son, 
it was good enough for his daughter, but not for his son. So he founded a school which exists to this day, the Halifax Grammar School. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful school, um, which is now, of course, co-ed. But he, he expected great things from my brother, who was not a scholar. Um, and so for me, it was really, even though he, he was, he was regretful much later that he had been sexist and he, he got a subscription to Ms. Magazine, um, later <laughs> in life. Yeah. But at the beginning, I think that they were disappointed that I went into the theater. But at the same time, it was something that I seemed to be good at yeah. and that I started very, very early. I was, you know, I was acting when I was a child and then I was in university when a play I was in when I was 18, it was um, entered in the um, University Drama League competition and it won the competition and I won best actor in the in the competition and from there the show was invited to be to go professional and so suddenly at the age of uh, 19 I had an equity card and six of my fellows from university were in Toronto appearing in a professional touring production hmm. and so then I thought well that's a fluke and I went back to university to finish my degree and I was offered another job that uh, uh, the same tour and so I thought, well, this is amazing. They pay you really well. They offer you work. What's not to like, you know? Yeah. And so it seemed destined. I auditioned for, you know, a big London theater school, and I got in. And so I was an actor for 10 years while really always doubting what I was doing there and, and thinking there's something that isn't right about this. Yeah. So that is what Loose Woman is about. My second memoir is about that realization that there was something about acting that was not, in fact, what I wanted to do. So what and is I it? Think when, yeah. well, pardon sorry, me. Well, just yeah. when I left acting, I think my parents were relieved, you know, <laughs> that I was going to yeah. now move on to writing and having children. So what what is it like for you now when you see colleagues? Um, as you have over the years in television shows and films, or you go to the theater and you see old friends, say, yeah. um, do, do you feel, um, you, as you write in the book, that you don't feel any, any jealousy or anything like that, but, but do, do you feel at home at all? I do. I, as I say in the book, it feels like a country where I used to live and where I speak the language, but I don't live there anymore. Mm. And, um, and so it's interesting, for example, in the book when I talk about Harriet Walter, mm -hmm. Dame Harriet Walter, as she is now, because we were considered to be similar types at theater school in London. And she, of course, has gone on to an extraordinary career. And... Um, and I, and I have not, you know, and I look at her, I mean, I, you know, she was on succession and she's on, you know, she, Ted Lasso. I, I was, yes, Ted Lasso. And I turn on the TV at one point and it's, um, Elton John, you know, the autobiography, the mm -hmm. bio, the... biopic of Elton John. And she's playing Elton John's piano teacher. And I go, Oh, Harriet, you know, hi. And we write to each other and I see her life which is extraordinary. I mean, she's making films, and she's working with the most interesting people in the world. You know, Alan Rickman, who is, I just idolized that man, and he was one of her dear friends. And, 
you know, it's an amazing life, and I do not envy it for one second because she's on the road all the time. And there's the, the demands for an actor that you are constantly reinventing yourself and being judged by what you do that minute, that night, you know. And I'm sitting in my sweatpants in my office thinking, and I'm much happier there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the book also has, has marvelous pieces. Um, loving pieces, uh, not just of family relations, but uh, of friends. I think of Len Cunningham, uh, Dorothy, yes. the neighbor, uh, Bob Hanforth, Penny and Babs, who we talked about just before we started taping. Um, uh, these are such loving um, remembrances of, of uh, old friends. Um, what, what is it like to, to think about them and, and think about them regularly, as I think you do, right? I do. And, you know, somebody said something about my the first book, Finding the Jewish Shakespeare, which was the, um, the biography of my great-grandfather, because no one had ever written about this quite extraordinary man. And a friend read it, and he said, you have struck a blow against amnesia. <laughs> and I loved that expression. Yeah. And I feel when I write about people like Lynn Cunningham and Bob Hanforth and Dorothy, it's wonderful to hear you say their names. And it almost makes me want to cry because these were valuable and important people. And it's a great joy, one of the great joys of my life, that I can not just remember them, but I can immortalize them in a way in print so that other people can meet them, even though they're not here anymore. You know, Terry the Butcher. Mm. Um, it's, um, you know, these are people who who matter, and, um, and they still matter, and people, they're there now. They're in the book, they're on the page, and so people will be able to meet them, I hope, a hundred years from now, and know who they were and what they did in a very small way. And that is the great gift of the writer, is that you can help also people remember, you know, the people who should be remembered. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about some people in my life, as I'm reading about the people in your life. And um, I'm thinking of them, you know, fondly yes. and, and not so fondly in some cases. Yes. Um, there's, um, um, I, I don't want to give away uh, something, Um it's about your friend Babs, who you met uh, at a young age, and or I guess you were pen pals with one another. Is that right? Yes. So um, uh, she is taken ill at a very young age, yes. and um, you uh, maintain this correspondence up until her death. She 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 was in England, and then she actually came to America for yes. uh, for procedure. Is that right? Yes. She is. So we met through a British children's magazine that was setting up pen pals between British children and Canadian children. Yeah. And, um, and a friend of mine handed me a bunch of letters that she'd received, and I picked Babs. And we started to write to each other. Uh, we were both 12 and, uh, or 11 when we started. Yeah. But anyway, and, um, and then she told me one day that she had a hole in her heart. And um, and so that helped me to understand. She was very small. You know, she was much smaller than I was. 
and eventually she she went into hospital and we were still writing through all this and she was then accepted at the Mayo Clinic for an operation to repair her heart mm. and she had just turned 16 when she and her mother flew to the Mayo Clinic and of course the moment that I received this letter from her mother telling me that she had died after the operation and it was absolutely one of the most devastating yeah. moments of my life I was 15 she was 16 and she had died and she had not had a chance at life yeah. and it seemed so unfair and then I started to look at her letters to me and how she was begging me to write to her um, because I was out and I was busy and I was doing things and we were traveling and you know I would write to her but not nearly as often as she wrote to me and mm. I felt this most catastrophic guilt yeah. and yeah. I really swore that no one would ever say to me again I'm waiting to hear from you yeah what and that is yeah well that's just a reason that I've gone on writing yeah. as much as I have uh, did you um, I'm trying to remember now I guess the mother's name was she was her name Elsie um, her mother yeah yeah well, did yes. you keep in touch with her after because she wrote you back and then you wrote did you keep in touch in that in that period after her death no, so so she wrote to me and I wrote to her, but then, you know, I really marvel that I kind of let it go in a way that I would never have later in life. And, of yeah. course, I was in my teens and, you know, a great deal was happening, and that even when I went to theater school in London, I didn't get in touch with the family who lived in Wimbledon, mm. which is very close to London. And so they just sort of fell off my radar and yet I kept her letters all those years you know yeah. decade after decade wherever I went I took Babs's letters with me and then there was this one day when I just realized I had to write about her and I yeah. started to google and I found her brother and through him her sister finally I you know I wrote to her brother and her sister got in touch with me yeah. and in fact I am going to England in April and I will be traveling around England with Penny and staying with her in Liverpool I see yeah so, so we're, we're still friends yeah that which is a great thing because you you eventually share the letters with her and um, there's a there's a moment in 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 the piece that I don't want to give away it has oh, to do with we can, we can give it away well it's, it's a, okay it's the eerie timing in terms of, yes. of when you pick up the letters I think people should read that because I, I I sat there reading that and I just I, my mouth dropped when <laughs> oh, good. when I saw that oh, good. but but it, it's beautiful because you have kept this this friendship with her sister and um, you've shared the letters back and forth as well as a, an essay that was published elsewhere is that right Yes, yeah. I had an essay published in in Queen's Quarterly. No, it was in the New Quarterly. Was about or no? It was sorry. There's so many quarterlies, and I've <laughs> been published in. I think it was in Queen's Quarterly. This uh, called correspondence, which is on my website under yeah. articles. And yes, it's. I, I'm very grateful that uh, Penny also loves to write. And so this is another example of a blow against amnesia. Yeah. That her sister has lived on through us. Yeah. Even though she died in 1966, we've kept her alive in our memories and with her family and with my family and with my writing. And, you know, so Babs is with us. 
Yeah, it's, it's a great remembrance of a, of a person who's obviously a fascinating person. I kept thinking of, you know, had she lived, what, what she would have amounted to, and I think it would have just been great things, don't you think? I think so, too. Yeah. She was so lively and so forceful, considering, you know, yeah. the health. She had enormous health problems, and she was very weak, and she was tiny, but she had a very forceful personality. The um, th- that piece um, brings up something that you you write about, I guess, in the postscript uh, about this dilemma that that uh, writers of memoir have uh, versus yes. what you remember and um, what those you write about remember, because they obviously have memories and opinions of their own. Um, yes. In particular, I'm curious about your own children, because you write about yes. them throughout the book. What what do they make of how? Um, you write about them, say, because you're quite candid, and not just about yourself, but about them. Um, yes. You know, your, your, your daughter's life and, and your son's life and, and, and um, the, the ups and downs of your relationship with them growing up. And then this, this relationship that you have with them now, that's, that's a, uh, just a beautiful one. Um, you're quite honest about them, and, and I'm curious to know what um, they've made of mother's writing, say. Yes, they... They, uh, one of my roles was that I would never publish anything without their permission. So even, you know, Chilling and Puking, which is about Anna's teenage years, which were really were a nightmare, mm-hmm. um, she read it first. And, um, and they got used to it. And so the funny thing is that my kids um, don't really read my writing um, and I was listening to a CBC interview just a few days ago with R.L. Stein, mm. you know, who has written, he writes young people's books, the Goosebumps series. Yeah. He, he's written something like 500 books for young people. And yet he said, my own kids don't read my books. He said, that is the revenge of a writer's children, <laughs> not to read what their parents write. <laughs> and uh, my kids, you know, now, of course, particularly if I'm, even though I'm not writing graphically about sex, but, you know, I do have a sex life, and it is mentioned in the books, and, you know, kids really do not want to know about their parents' (laughs) sex life. And so they, as far as I know, they haven't read any of my books. My my daughter did read The Jewish Shakespeare, which is a tough slog, and at the end of it, she said, I'm proud to know where I come from. Mm. And that meant more to me than anything. But, you know, so I haven't published anything about them without their permission. Believe me, I haven't told you that the half of it, <laughs> of, uh, you know, what we've been through together. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, I do mention, and somebody pointed out that at the end of Midlife Solo, I do mention that my son was an alcoholic, and he is now in recovery. And she said, well, that came out of the blue. You know, you never wrote about that. And no, I didn't. You know, in the old days when I was writing these essays, I certainly was not writing about my... I didn't know that he was an alcoholic until not very long ago. And so um, there, you know, there are things like that. But I asked him, is it okay if I mention that, and he said, "Yes, absolutely, it's the truth," and I am in recovery. Yeah, I, I, so, I, I took note of the, the when you you mentioned your, your son's alcoholism. You also describe your daughter as zaftig, and um, yes. um, I, I was curious to know um, has she read that? Say, 
Oh yes, she's proud of the fact that she's Zaftig. I mean, she's she's what I she has what I call a juicy body. Um, she she has uh, she loves eating, and she has no qualms about having a lovely round belly. So she, you know, we our bodies are very different, and um, she her you know she's got enormous breasts. I mean, she would not in any way be embarrassed about me saying that that is what her body is i have these two children my son is six foot eight with sort of reddish blonde hair Uh and my daughter is five foot five with thick black hair and dark dark eyes i mean i i have to tell people that i know for sure that they are 100 percent genetically related because they do not look (laughs) <laughs> remotely like each other, yeah. um, but they are very alike in that they are both hospitable, empathetic, kind people in the ways that matter most. Yeah. So, so yes, Anna would have absolutely no, she uh, does not care about being called Saftig. I was going to ask you if you're proud of your kids, but it's obvious that you are. Do, do you think they're proud of you? Oh, yes. I think they have had to, you know, I've, I know that I've embarrassed them. Um, I'm impatient. When we go to restaurants, you know, I'm sort of snapping my fingers for the waiter before my <laughs> bum hits the chair. They say, you know, Mom, chill. And, um, and, of course, I love to dance, which is the most embarrassing thing <laughs> that a parent can do. But, yes, you know, I've published a bunch of books. I've been nice to their friends. I mean, there's a bunch of their friends who've lived in this house at various times. Um, I I love not only them but their friends, and um, we it, it really is a, a great gift that we get along with each other. Indeed, um, there's a, a piece in the book about uh, your thrifting days, and I was sad to read in the postscript that. Um, you're not as zealous a, a thrifter today as you once were. Is that right? I, yes. Uh, there was a time when it, when, as I as I say in the book, it was the equivalent of my sex life. <laughs> um, well, that was also because the, there was a goodwill around the corner. Mm. And, you know, and it really was sort of once a day I would slip out and I would troll the aisles looking for treasure and um and it was in enormously time consuming and uh and also very very satisfying because i would find things for other people as well as for myself i would i was buying coats mm. for people and sweaters my friend ways and choi i i outfitted ways and you know for years all of his winter coats came from goodwill from me mind you ways and also loved goodwill and he mm. was there a lot but then the Goodwill closed down, and I was devastated. And then they opened Double Take, which is cleaner and not nearly as fun, um, but which is also a thrift store and where I still go perhaps twice a week. And you never know. I just posted, in fact, on Instagram um, this week a few things. I found a T-shirt for me and a sweatshirt for my son and some housewares. And so my, it was actually my son who said, Mom, when you find a really good thing, you should, you know, post it on Instagram. Yeah. And, and so I did, and a bunch of people were writing, you know, good score. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, so, I, I, I like doing that from time to time. I, 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 
there was a time I where I was into in buying cast iron pans and restoring them um, and enjoying that. And, of course, my political button affliction. Um, but I know because we we're friends on Facebook, yeah, so but, I see I see your your treasures. But it, it it's never gotten orgasmic for me when I find something rare. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, you know, it would literally I would go, oh, you know, particularly of course with the Balenciaga ball gown, mm. which is just the most extraordinary thing. Um, you know, it is a an, a gorgeous maroon heavy silk uh, ball gown with a giant bow at the back and it fits me nearly perfectly and it was $18 with the Balenciaga somebody gave a Balenciaga ball gown to Goodwill I mean who was that person so um, you know I'm grateful because these days people give much less Mm. and the thing about thrifting for clothes which i really rarely do now is that it's mostly joe fresh and you know and and zara and h&m and things like that whereas when i started literally i could find chanel and and christian dior and amazing amazing things yeah but it took you mentioned in the book and this is this is the case in vancouver too where there are people with too much money um, they want more money, and so they don't donate the things. They they sell it. Yes. Uh, the, what do you call those things? The uh, consignment yes, places. They, the, yes, the consignment places. You just go really. Yeah. You know you, you. Yeah, because of course those places. I mean, that's the another part of that story in the in the book is that some of them are real rip off places, yeah. and one of them just ripped me off royally. I mean never paid me anything for really wonderful stuff that I left there. So, you know, it's I mean I just am incapable of making money that with selling stuff. I've realized I can't I don't really know how to sell books though I do try, but certainly second hand clothes, I did try that for a while and I'm absolutely hopeless. Yeah. I'm good at buying. I'm <laughs> the, not good at selling. Yeah, I'm the I'm the same. I'm the same. Um the other thing that I I was feeling as I was finishing midlife solo was that that um, here you are looking back, um, and um, I couldn't help but think that you know you probably feel very lucky as to how everything turned out because there were there were some rough times there where you didn't know how you're going to make ends meet or you know the the fire just yes. dis- nearly destroyed the house. Um, yes, is where you are today what your younger self would have wanted? Yes. Absolutely, though I had no idea what I wanted, but I have been incredibly lucky, you know, even with the fire, which I really thought, well, that's it. I mean, I'm just going to be homeless and what's going to happen? And and then it turned out that I could use the insurance money to create uh, a suite in my basement and then another, uh, I got a small inheritance, which enabled me to create another suite on the top floor of, of the house. And so, you know, it's it's a major part of my income is the fact that I'm I rent out mm-hmm. half of my house to to two different tenants and things like that, where where it just looked disastrous, and I nearly sold the house a number of times, mm-hmm. and instead it's turned out to be very very lucky. So far, and you know, I've been blessed so far with good health as I'm touching all the wood that I possibly can. <laughs> yeah, and you know, my kids also at the moment are healthy, 
and I do, I have two jobs that I love. You know, I love writing and I love teaching. And so I, I couldn't be luckier. Um, you know, it really is. I, I guess if I had a, a small, the one thing that I wish was that I used to have this place that I went to in Paris, mm. which was an affordable little apartment that belonged to friends of mine. And it was in the perfect place, and it was a small apartment that was flooded with sunlight, and I was so happy there. And they sold it. And, uh, you know, so for perfect happiness, I would still be able to go to that place. Yeah. Or, you know, but really, no, I could not be luckier and more grateful to the gods that be for the way my life has turned out. Well, long may it continue, because... Um I had such a delight reading this book and, and talking to you again. Um, I, I hope you take oh, good. Too. I hope you take good care because I can't wait for the next book and, and the next blog post and the next Facebook post because I, I'm a big fan, obviously, and, and uh, uh, I've so appreciated your time today. Thanks again for this. Oh, you ask the best questions, really. So it's just a joy to talk to you. So thank you very much. The book is called Midlife Solo, Writing Through Chaos to Find My Way in the World. It's uh, published by Mosaic Books. Also visit uh, Beth's uh, website where you can find her blog, bethkaplan.ca is the website uh, address. Uh, Beth Kaplan, join me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato. <laughs>